Good morning. I usually don't do this, but I felt like doing it this morning, and I asked, I asked Heather. We was talking about some stuff on the way here, and I can't remember the gentleman's name, but the, uh, it's a, he's our missionary to the Philippines, and we're singing a song this morning, and we've sung it before, but I feel like explaining it this morning, and I don't normally, but um, the song is I Want to See Crumbs. And uh, so the story in the Bible uh, of Lazarus and the rich man, he's laid at the gate, and there's a lot of speculation. I've heard people talk about why was he there? And the man was covered with sores, and he was a beggar. And uh, one, one thing that came to me is I think he was there because he was willing. I think, I think he was the last chance for that rich man to get saved. And when, when I read that story, uh, this, is, this is a boisterous, happy song. But when someone comes to the altar to get saved, and they really get saved, there's a change that happens and how they were before they kneel down is not how they are when they get up. And when you see that change in their face or their countenance, I count that as a crumb. We've already ate. We're continually eating off the bread of life. But in that story of Lazarus and the rich man, it said all he desired was the crumbs from the rich man's table. Now I was thinking about that, you know, uh, Terry talks about preachers before him, and he talks about himself, and he says, I'm just a beggar. You know, he's begging people to come to the altar. And uh, I, I think it's odd that Lazarus, when he, that, that rich man could have came out with physical food, he could have gave him the whole loaf. But I don't believe that's what would have satisfied Lazarus. Lazarus, I believe, wanted to see a change in that rich man. Because when you see a plate, and this, this is in the song, when you see a plate that's got some crumbs on it and there's nobody else around, you know somebody has eaten. And then there's a, this is why I was talking about our missionary to the Philippines, and then we'll sing. Um, he told a story because the, the line in the song, I don't want a pretty napkin on a golden plate. The, the missionary from the Philippines said before he found God, the church he went to, I'm not sure what it was. It was probably an Orthodox church of some kind. He said it was beautiful. He said there was pictures, and I think he even mentioned there was like gold. And it was a beautiful place that just put him, you know, to see it, you'd be amazed. But when his friend invited him to church, it was a, basically a shack with wooden slats where they sat. And that's where he found God. That's where he ate the bread of life. So that's the place that became special to him. And I'll be honest with you, I told the kids in the car, we were talking about that. That fancy church became like the Bible almost talks about a sepulcher. It's polished up on the outside. It's beautiful, but there's death on the inside. So um, I, I think it's important. I remember the first time I started listening to the words of the songs and really trying to understand them. And one of them was, rock of ages cleft for me. And I thought, what does that mean? And then I realized... Jesus is the rock and he went on the cross and his body was pierced and it was open and he made a place the rock open made a cleft that I could hide in I could get in and if we need to listen to the words of the songs and uh, I, I just I felt like explaining that this morning and, and we're going to sing it like I said it's a happy song but they just aren't up here singing about something frivolous they're singing about something real and uh, even though it's a child song I hope they sing it the rest of their lives, and if someday they realize what it means, it means something to them.
say uh, say good morning. I, I ruined that part, but say good morning on the count of three. Good morning. One, two, three. Good morning. everybody this morning. We appreciate the great crowd we have and uh, appreciate our children singing this morning and what Brother Barry had to say. And, uh, I'm glad one time I ate off that table and uh, we'd uh, love to see somebody else have that opportunity this morning. I, I believe the opportunity will be here. They just got to make that effort and uh, they got to decide that they're going to come and eat off at God's table and uh, receive what he's offering this morning. But uh, We're thankful to be here and uh, Pray that we just have a great service this morning. And uh, I'm going to ask Brother Kenny Hall, will you dismiss us Sunday school?
Well, it's good to be here. We appreciate everybody for coming out. And, uh, boy, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the kids and them singing. Uh, it's, it's a lift on Sunday mornings, and I enjoy their enthusiasm. Sure appreciate Barry. He does a great job with those kids, teaching them those songs and writing a lot of those songs. So, uh, <clears throat> appreciate Brother Carl asking me to, to teach today. And so we're going to be in Ezra. He gave a little bit of a, uh, a teaser on it Wednesday night when he was opening up. And we're uh, going to be in Ezra, the first chapter. I'm actually going to start my reading today. And our lesson is in Ezra, the, the first, and then a little bit in the second chapter. But I'm going to start my reading today in 1 Kings chapter 8. So if you've got your Bible, if you want to turn there, turn to 1 Kings in chapter 8. Um, we are studying, entering into to this week and next week, maybe the next few weeks. We're going to be talking about the temple in Jerusalem a lot. And I told Brother Carl this morning that I'm going to do my best to stay off of next week's lesson because these two lessons are so intertwined. So instead of going from this week's lesson forward, I'm going to try to go from this week's lesson back just a little bit, and that's why I'm going to start in Kings. So we're going to talk a little bit about the temple um, and the significance of the temple. What did it mean? What did it signify? What was its importance uh, to Jerusalem to Israel and, and what what did you know why was it so important and so um, you know trying to tie some of these things together we're going to go back to Kings David had a vision when he was king and he wanted to build this house for God and David sinned and we won't go into all that we all know the story but God because of that sin God told David you can't build the house. I'll let you I'll let you accumulate the material. I'll let you at least see the the material and have the plans a little bit, but you can't build it. And so David did his part and he died and his son Solomon came along and God impressed Solomon to build this temple. So this is the temple we're talking about. And, you know, I think it's easy to get that, you know, disconnect because it's so far apart. But when we're talking about the temple in Jerusalem, that's the building we're talking about. It's this temple that Solomon built. And that was the first temple. Solomon built the temple approximately 1000 B.C. It was probably actually finished uh, maybe like around 980 or something in there. There's different, different dates, but it was approximately 1,000 B.C. when Solomon built the temple. And I'm not going to tell you, but I want to just give you, I guess, another teaser. When you leave here, if you're interested in the temple, go figure out why Solomon chose that spot to build the temple. It'll be a blessing to you. I'll just leave it there, okay? So go figure it out. And if you want to get on your phone or your computer, you can Google it and know in about 30 seconds. But, I mean, go spend some time and figure it out. It's a blessing to me why he built the temple there. All right. Now let's jump ahead for just a minute. The Jews have a temple today 
in Jerusalem that is the center of a world of controversy. And it still is right now. There's a big conflict in Jerusalem over this site. All right? Because the Muslims claim it, and the Jews claim it, and the Christians claim at least a desire to go there and, and see it. But the Jews and the Muslims have got a big controversy, and a lot of it is over Jerusalem and over this exact place because it's their holy place to both of them. So let's see what Solomon has to say here in the 8th chapter of Kings. So Solomon's, he's got the temple constructed, and he's having a dedication service. That's where we're at here in the 8th chapter of Kings. So I want to start at verse 22. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel. So everybody's there, all right? And spread forth his hands towards heaven. So we're having a dedication service. I don't know, probably everyone or most of the folks in here remember back in 97, we built this building, all right? This building's a nice building. It, has, it ha doesn't have the significance that the temple had for the children of Israel there. But when we built this building, we had a dedication service. And I, I, I mean, we had a great service, and Dad almost set the place on fire because he got the, we, he wanted to show we didn't have a mortgage, and we were so happy about that. He got the offering plate, and it had a little bit of cloth in the bottom of it, and he put a piece of paper in there and lit it on fire, and it, it actually burnt the bottom of the offering plate. I don't know who all remembers that, but I thought it was kind of funny. But we had a dedication service. We wanted to thank God for this building that he had given us. Well, that's what they're doing here. All right. Solomon is up before him, and, and then he, he makes this, uh, this great prayer before the people. And I want to jump down to verse 46. So this is still, this is Solomon praying, and he's talking about his people. He's talking about Israel here. If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, and thou be angry with them. Now he's talking to God, and he's talking about the children of Israel. And deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy, far or near. So Solomon is saying, if your people sin against you and it's so bad that you let them be carried away captive, whether it's somewhere close or somewhere far, all right, yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land whether they were carried captives, if they're there and they happen, if God, if they remember home, if they'll turn their heart back toward Jerusalem, back toward home, and repent and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely. We have committed wickedness. And so return unto thee with all of their heart. So right there is the real catch. With all their heart. Now he's saying, if they turn and look back toward Jerusalem, because this is the center of their worship at this time naturally, Okay, this place is where they are commanded under the law to go, and this is where they are supposed to turn. Everybody remembers the story about Daniel. Daniel prayed three times a day, and he didn't do it in a closet in secret. He went and opened his window, and he looked back 
toward Jerusalem where everybody could see him and he prayed. He turned his heart toward Jerusalem. In this particular case, when we're dealing with Israel here, it was a requirement that they do that naturally, okay? Now, with all their heart, all right? Denny taught me something years ago in Sunday school, and I'd never thought about it before. But when they did these things under the law that they were required to do when they were worshiping, and it also had to be with their heart, you see that here, God's spirit would move in their lives. They worshiped. They had a, a burden that we don't have because they, had to, they were under the law. And they had to worship under the law. But when they did those things and the priest got up in the sea and cleaned himself and did all he was supposed to do and went in before the Holy of Holies and offered the sacrifice and, and all of that was done according to the way it was supposed to be done under the law, God's spirit moved. It was the same as if we meet here at Yoder Road and we get our hearts right. God's spirit will move and we will worship. All right? So... That had a, a very significant place in their lives because that was where they needed to look back to. If they could get there, they needed to go there and worship. And if they couldn't, they needed to turn back. How many times in my life have I found myself where I wasn't supposed to be? And I've got to turn my heart spiritually back toward Jerusalem. Now, I didn't acclimate myself and, and get out a compass and figure out where's Jerusalem but I had to take my heart and turn it back towards home back towards God and that's when God would bless me and forgive me so that's what Solomon is talking about here so let's go on here let me I'm not sure exactly where I was at but let me read uh, let me read verse 49 then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven thy dwelling place and maintain their cause and forgive thy people that have sinned against thee and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against thee and give them compassion before them who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them so this is 400 approximately years before our lesson today but it sets out a real picture. Solomon was praying for his people down the road that were going to come after him, and God heard his prayer, and God answered his prayer. So let's turn to Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying... So we're going to talk about the proclamation here in a minute. Um, it mentions Jeremiah. could have also mentioned Isaiah because they both prophesy very specifically years before this lesson is taking place. Jeremiah was probably 50 to 70 years. I'm, I'm 
guessing a little bit, and I think Isaiah was probably a couple of hundred years or close to it that he prophesied. So let's look and see exactly what those two fellows had to say about what was going on here. Uh, Jeremiah, and this is one of my, one of, if I had to pick a favorite, this might be my favorite, but it, it, if I was picking a handful, certainly in my handful of favorite scriptures, and, and I've told that recently, but lately, man, I have been on this section of scripture. Brother Carl started off a couple of weeks ago before his lesson and read this, Jeremiah 29 and 10 is where I'm going. And I, I just about could have shouted right at the start of Sunday school because I'd, I'd read it. I think I read it to Becky three times that week, and we had talked about it, and I'd, I'd read it to my kids. I love this. So Jeremiah is prophesying, and the, and the children of Israel are getting ready to be carried away uh, captive. And so he's saying this, uh, 29 and 10, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my uh, good toward you in causing you to return to this place. So he's telling them, you're going to be carried away, but I'm going to bring you back in 70 years. He's telling them right at the beginning of this thing, if they read and believed Jeremiah, God's telling them, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end. He knows what the end is from the beginning. I love that, that in that song that Mackenzie sang. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen down the road. He, there's another song I love. He's already in my tomorrow. So I don't know what's coming, but God's already there. He's already taking care of whatever I'm going to face tomorrow. He's already taking care of it. And he's telling the children of Israel here, man, they're going through a time. They just got carried away captive to Babylon. Approximately 1,700 miles is how far that was. Think about that. Their temple was destroyed, and everything that was good that, that Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian people thought had any value, they took with them and just carried them off. Left their temple just in a pile of rubble. But God's telling them, I've got good thoughts towards you. I'd be thinking, man, really? But he wrote it, and if they believed it, it was an encouragement to them. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Again, all your heart. Uh, there's, a, there's a commonality here. And so, Jeremiah has prophesied ahead of time and told them what's going to happen if they were looking at it. Uh, I won't go and read it, but Isaiah 44 and 28 uh, and that was, Isaiah lived from 740 to approximately 700 B.C. So it was, I mean, it was 150 to 200 years uh, before we're talking in this lesson right here. And so it's just so encouraging to me and so inspirational to me that God had his prophets telling the people, and you know, they were warning them, and we've talked about uh, the book of Judges and how, 
things just kept going down and down and down and then the kings came in and they'd do a little bit better but things just kept sliding and sliding and sliding God kept warning them does it remind you of anything today I, I mean if you look at what was going on there boy it sounds a lot like the world we're living in today I mean things just continue to go down I mean you look around and sin is just accepted and talked about and is commonplace and uh, you turn on the TV you see it you look at a magazine you see it you turn on the radio uh, you hear it you go to work you hear your co-workers talking about it uh, so awful familiar uh, so that should be a warning to us but uh, so anyway that's the prophecy uh, there had been prophecy that this was coming. The other thing I want to mention is in that verse in Isaiah, Isaiah doesn't just prophesy what's going to happen. He actually calls the name Cyrus. All right. Now, a lot of the scholars today will say, well, somebody went back and altered Isaiah's writing and added that in after the fact. I don't buy that. I think Isaiah wrote what God inspired him to write. How did he know it was going to be a king named Cyrus? I think God told him, and that's, that's all I know on that. But I don't buy for one second that somebody went back and altered his writings later to add the name Cyrus in to make it fit. God's word fits. Uh, so he actually said that it was going to be a, somebody named Cyrus that was going to release God's people. And so, uh, anyway, we're back to, back to Ezra here. Um, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Who all thinks Cyrus was a? was a good Christian fellow, a good Jew. He's bound to have converted, right? No. If you read, and, and a lot of this is history, but I, I think it it's lines up with the Bible as well. Cyrus was from what's now Iran, if I've got it correctly, and they had a God, and I looked it up, but I, I, don't, I don't even remember. It started with a Z. And he followed that God. And they were they kind of worshipped light. If it was fire or the the sun, that was kind of that was really what they prayed to, is what I got from it. So he never he never turned towards the God of Israel, but God impressed him and put him with a heart to allow his children put him in this place and utilized him a lot like he used uh, King James to help us have this Bible that we have now. So God can utilize people and put them in the right place even if they are not his chosen. Now, did Cyrus ever turn to God? I don't know. I hope he did. Uh, but he was sure doing some things that were friendly towards God's people here. Uh, Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. And let him go to Jerusalem which is in Judah, 
and build the house of the, of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. So he's telling them here that if you have a desire to go back to Jerusalem and build a temple, you can go. So when I do the math, I'm at about 50 years from the time that the temple was destroyed and they were, they were carried away by Nebuchadnezzar really in the last big, uh, big battle. It wasn't much of a battle, but the, basically just destruction and, and captive. Um, and so I'm about 50 years because that was about 586 and this is about 538 B.C. Okay, so I'm about 50 years. Uh, and I know that Jeremiah said 70, and I can't get it to 70. Maybe Carl can. Maybe that 70 is talking about from the first time that Jerusalem was put under siege by Nebuchadnezzar, because that had happened, and essentially Nebuchadnezzar was ruling Jerusalem for quite a while. Uh, maybe that 70 years is talking about this time span plus some more. I don't know. But I get 50. And keep in mind, these dates are approximate because obviously we didn't have, you know, an historian there writing it all down and putting it right. So I'm, I'm telling you approximate dates. I, I can't prove any of them exactly. But so we're about 50 years from the time that the, the, all the good was carried out of Jerusalem and was carried down to Babylon. And Cyrus is now letting them go home. Does anybody have any comments? You got any comments on them, them years? Because that's the best I got. All right. Well, it was about, it was actually, it was close to 1,700 miles. And certainly there was some time for them to travel because they were carrying, and they had, and we'll go through the list of stuff they had. Um, well, I don't know. That's a good question. Right. So there was definitely some pre and good points and things I've thought about. There was definitely some preparation. I mean, they've, moved, they've been carried down there. They have settled in. That's where they're living now, okay? It's not like they just got there and he says, okay, turn around and go back. So they're living there. They've got homes there. He tells them to do some things before they go as far as to collect some money. And there was some discussion, I'm sure, amongst them. I'm, they probably wanted to travel in a group, so there was probably some time set. Scripture is silent on that, but I think that's all good points. And I don't know the terrain, so I don't know if it took a year to travel that. I do know there were some delays once they got to back to Jerusalem before they ever really got started working on the temple because there was some opposition of the folks there in, you know, uh, the enemies that were around Jerusalem. So uh, those are all good points, and, and maybe it was that time frame until the temple actually got started, or they, they did some work. I, I can't answer that, but um, certainly took some time for them to travel back. So any other comments? Okay, number four, verse four. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver 
and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So that's what I was saying. There's some preparation that's taking place here. After this decree is made, Cyrus says, guys better go collect up some money. You're going to need some money when you get back there. And if, you know, everybody that wants to go can go. And if there's some, the way I interpret this, if there's people that aren't going, but they want to give you some, some gold or some silver, or they've got some beasts that they want to give you to help you in this endeavor, that's fine. You know, when we, back to this, I mean, because this is a, an example that's at least somewhat recent in my mind. It's hard for me to fathom. It's been 25 years. Uh, we built this in 97. We moved in the first Sunday in June, and so we're coming up on 25 years that we've been in the new church. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's, we, we had a vision to build a church. I remember when we met out here for the groundbreaking, you know, uh, we didn't have, I don't think at that point when we broke ground, I don't even know that we had plans made. Maybe we had some plans underway can't remember exactly we didn't have all the money we didn't have the material sitting here but boy we had a great service out here where we broke ground and turned some turned some shovels of dirt so we had a vision god you know anointed that i had no idea i, I had no doubt we were going to have a church here but i didn't know what it was going to look like yet it took a few years yeah yeah, yeah i mean i remember uh, the first discussions we had about building a new church someplace other than Albert Street that I recall were in the early to mid-80s. Well, we moved in here in 97, so that ended up and took 10 or, 10 or so years, maybe 12, uh, from the time we started talking about it, thinking about it. Roy kept the money, and we'd, he'd give a report every month, and we added a little bit more and a little bit more. Uh, so... There's a process. So that's what they're talking about here. So Cyrus is telling them, if, you know, everybody that wants to go, go. And, and go back. You're, you're free to go. He released them. Um, so, I mean, you know, Nebuchadnezzar took them over. Cyrus came in and conquered Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and that's, that's how this kind of came about. I mean, everybody probably understands that Bible history, but it's a different, you know, uh, different kingdom. And Cyrus was a, you know, different fellow than Nebuchadnezzar, a lot different fellow. So, so let's talk about this free will offering. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but what do you think of free will offering? Why did he distinguish that? Why did he say free will offering? I mean, we, we do that sometimes, right? We take up an offering, so we're going to take up a free will offering to help such and such their house burn down or to do this. This church is in trouble over here. I mean, we've done that through the years. Free will offering. Right. It's in addition to, oh, there's that dirty word, tithe. All right. Are we supposed to tithe? And I'm not going to teach on this a long time, but do we have a requirement to tithe? Under the law they did. If you go back and read the very last, I don't remember what chapter it is, but the very last part of Leviticus, they had a very complicated tithing system tithed so much from 
from wheat and so much from animals and if it was this type of animal you had to they had to be this big and different things and boy it makes my head hurt but they had a system they had tithing was required all right but that was under the first covenant right Jay we're not required to tithe anymore right I mean God did away with that that first covenant we're under the second covenant now right all right so Luke 11:42. I'm not going to read it right now but Go read it if you've got a question about tithing because God, Christ, our Lord, in his own language is talking to some folks of his time. And he's telling them, well, you've done this and this and this and this, but you've left your heart out of it. Okay, again, the heart. And certainly we've got to serve God with our heart. Then what does Christ say? He says, these things all should ye have done but you should have done it with your heart. So the Lord's telling us that tithing is something that we should be doing. All right? So I'll leave that there. You can look that up and decide that on your own, but that's just my feeling on tithing. And I, and I thought, wow, this, I mean, Cyrus recognizes it here. He's telling them, Hey, go collect up the tithes, and if somebody wants to give you a free will offering on top of that to help with the church, the temple, that's great. Collect that up too, all right? Anybody have any comments on that? You can disagree with me if you want to, but I... I all right. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah, and Benjamin, and the priests, and the Levites, and all them whose spirit God had raised... Who's ever been in that spot where you've been really low and seem like you're just about as low as you can get and something happens and God raises your spirit? Boy, it doesn't take but just that quick, too. I'm thankful that God raises my spirit sometimes. To go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So they start... You know, they hear the decree, they hear what he said, and they start to get excited. They've got a vision, and they're thinking, hey, this, this can really happen. And all they that were about strengthened their hands with vessels of silver and gold, with goods and with beasts and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. So they, they worked, and they took up, you know, when, when we built this church, it was, it was taken up, the offerings, but, I mean, there were people that were going to work daily, earning a living, putting money in the, in the offering plate to fund this. You know, if we had said, gee, we're going to build a church, and we're just going to sit right here and cross our arms and wait until God just snaps his finger and constructs that church, we'd still be at Albert Street. There's a work to do, and, and that's what he's describing here. Um, also, Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus king of Persia bring forth in the land of Mithradath, in the hand, I'm sorry, of Mithradath, the treasurer, and numbered them unto Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And then we jump down to verse 11. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400, 
All these did Chesbazar bring up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon into Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar emptied out the temple. He takes anything of value and wipes it completely out. Cyrus is letting them go home. And not only does he let them go home and lets them and, and makes this decree that anybody that wants to go can go and you can collect up money and take it with you to pay for your trip and to pay for rebuilding the temple. But I'm going to send back the items that go in your temple, the, the gold and the silver and the things that were precious to you. I'm going to send it back with you so when you get there and you get your temple built, you'll have the stuff to put back in it. It reminds me of when I was lost. Because up until I was about five years old, I, what I classify, the term I used was I was safe because God had never spoke to me. These children of Israel were in Jerusalem and they were safe. They had their temple and they were worshiping God. And then something happened and they get carried away captive in a strange land a long way from home. Well, the gospel got to me and I realized I was lost. And I was just a beggar. I was a slave to sin, just like they were slaves to Babylon. And then I realized that God had made a way for me to get back, just like he made a way for them to get back. And not only did he let me go back, but he sent me back with my pockets full. I didn't go back empty-handed. And the children of Israel that went back did not go back empty-handed. They had plenty of gold and plenty of silver and plenty of animals to make the trip and to get the job done that they, they had a work to do when they got there. They had to build this temple. And, and again, I'm not going to get on that. That's kind of next week's lesson. But there was a work to do. God saved me. I'm still in this country, and I've got a work to do. But he's given me everything that I need to do this work that he's set me into here. And he's given you everything you need to do the work that he set you into. All right. Before we start, and we've got just a few minutes, before we start into the second chapter, there's about four or five verses there. Does anybody have any comments on this first chapter of Ezra? think that there were and, and even Isaiah says that there's going to be a remnant that comes back uh, but I think there were people that had the ability and had the freedom to go back to Jerusalem 
that chose to stay in Babylon. And I think every Sunday that we gather here that there's people that have the ability and the opportunity to come here or kneel at their seat or raise their hand or do something and say, I need God, and they choose not to do that. Uh, it's a choice. It's a choice. Somebody else. All right. I'll read just a couple of these. And the whole congregation, this is Ezra 2, 64. And it's 64 through 7. And so the whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score. Besides their servants and their maids of whom there were 7,330 and 7. And there were among them 200 singing men and singing women. And it tells how many horses and camels, and, and it tells there at the end. So the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the porters and the Nithanims dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. So it's telling that they went back home. So why is there a description of how many and what they went back with? And, and, if, and there's another space here, the first part of, of the second chapter. It tells a bunch of the names. It tells the, the families and, and who it was. I mean, and those names don't mean anything to me. I don't know any of those people. But I think it's important, and it was important for them. Just from a natural standpoint, who, who's been to a high school graduation? I mean, everybody has been to a high school graduation, probably. All right. And you go and you sit and there's a couple hundred people and you listen and, you know, they say Bill Smith and, you know, Sue Smith and this one and, you know. But then they get to, you know, Olivia Brock. Woohoo! You know, that's my baby. She just graduated. You know, that's exciting. So here, even more so, these these folks have been through a terrible trauma or that they were, you know, conquered, carried away to a, a long way, seven, almost 1,700 miles, and now they've come home and they're, gonna, they're going to work on this. So I think from just that natural standpoint, I think it's important. But again, it has a real spiritual significance to me. Uh, and it reminds me that... Again, my name, and that name that only me and the Lord knows, my name was written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And it's not going to be erased. No matter what, you know, if, if Ezra got everybody's name or if he missed somebody's name, and one of the commentaries said, if you add up all the families and how many people he said, it doesn't total 42,000. Okay. That's that. Okay, I, I I buy that. I mean, I think that's probably right. So there was somebody in there that was counted in that forty-two thousand. That maybe you know their name Brock wasn't written down in in the families that came back. Okay, 